Welcome home. We're glad that you are here, wherever, however you might be joining us. Shout out to everybody in Webster. Hope you're having an awesome morning so far. Welcome Rochester campus. Welcome those online. Thanks for engaging with us there. My name, for those who don't know me, my name is Nate. I'm our Webster campus pastor. And before we dive in, as we start, I want to really begin with a question. And uh, think about this with me. Have you ever noticed that there are two kinds of people in the world? There are those that like to divide the world into two kinds of people, and then there are those that don't. And uh, we're always dividing people. It, it happens on so many, so many different things. But then sometimes we get divided over life and death questions. Right? For some, perhaps, maybe sometimes you're, you're waiting for a test for cancer. Right? And you're waiting because it's a life or death answer. Think about the people in Ukraine right now. They're thinking about their family. They're thinking about friends, perhaps, that they know in that area, and they're wondering, are they okay? And they're waiting because the answer to that is life or death. And today, what we're going to see is we're, we're going to be coming to a place here in Jesus' stories, he's on the cross, where Jesus is going to divide the world into two kinds of people, and the results are life or death. What side am I on? Am I getting the right results of this. And if you weren't with us last week, we started a new series called Final Words, where we are looking at the final words of Jesus as he hung on the cross. And there were seven statements that Jesus made while he hung on the cross. Each week, we're looking at one of those statements as that leads us right into Easter. And each of these statements has a profound, incredible truth that not only was impactful at the time of when Jesus said these words, but they even intersect and impact our hearts and our lives today. And so that's what we've been doing throughout um, this series. And we've also talked that what a person chooses to, to share at the end of their life that's a significant moment. It's a, it's a powerful moment. And oftentimes people are remembered by what they, what they say at the end of their life, whether for good or for bad. And the amazing thing about the Bible and the Gospels is that we have this incredible, unique privilege of getting to listen in to Jesus' final words as he hung on the cross. In each statement, I hope last week has impacted you. I hope today impacts you and on and on throughout this series. There's a truth there that we need to unpack for our own faith journey of following Jesus. And last week, we started with the first statement. We talked about how Jesus offered this amazing prayer of, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And how in that prayer of Jesus, we see him revealing mankind's greatest need, my greatest need, your greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sin. But we also see in that, in Jesus' prayer, that he sets a foundation for how you and I are able to extend forgiveness to the people in our lives that have hurt us, to the people that have wronged us. And today we're going to look at the second phrase that Jesus said when he was on the cross. And we're going to see this dialogue or this interaction between Jesus and two criminals that were crucified with Jesus. And we talked about this briefly last week. We know that Jesus was part of a small batch of guys who were scheduled to be crucified outside of Jerusalem on this afternoon. We also talked last week about how the prophet Isaiah prophesied and told us that this was going to happen, that, uh, that Jesus would be numbered among the transgressors. We even talked a little bit too last week about Barabbas and how Barabbas was supposed to be scheduled to be crucified, but the Jewish leaders, they convinced the angry mob to say, hey, we want Barabbas to go. Let, give us Barabbas. We want Jesus to be crucified. So Barabbas gets to go free. Jesus steps in and gets crucified, and there were a couple of other thieves and criminals that were not as lucky as Barabbas. And let's get to know these 
guys, and let's pick up with where we left off last week. Luke 23, we'll start in verse 32. Um, It says this, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him, that's Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots and the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. So here we see the statement we looked at last week, right? This incredible prayer of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. And now we see the response of the people around the cross in that moment to Jesus' statement. And we almost see like that prayer of Jesus almost like infuriates the crowd. It it like instigates them. And all of a sudden we see their, their response and they respond with, mocking and sneering and and insults. It continues in verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Now here we get to know the criminals a little bit better. They get in on the mocking. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults or hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And so here we are introduced to, we'll call him the first criminal. We'll call him the criminal on Jesus's left. So you have this guy over here and he is in the same situation as Jesus physically, right? He's been beaten, he's been bloodied, he's been bruised, he's got nails through his arms and through his feet, he's, he is dying and he is dying on this cross and what he is doing in the final moments of his life, the text tells us he's just hurling insults at Jesus. If you look at that word insult in, in the original language, in, in the Greek, it's a strong verb that means to throw hatred. And that's what this guy is doing to Jesus. He's producing and throwing hatred. It's like he's spewing venom at Jesus. In fact, some of your translations might even say that he railed against Jesus. So you've got this guy, just a few moments left of of his life, and all he can do in this moment is hurl insults at Jesus. And it's interesting. Look at what he says. He says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So this guy... This criminal looks at Jesus and says, are you not the Christ? Now it's important for us to understand that is not a statement of faith. That that is not a statement of this criminal um, on the left of trusting in Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, again, in the original language, it has this tone of a biting sarcasm to it. It's this abusive, demeaning way in which this criminal is speaking to Jesus. And it's interesting, he says, save yourself in us. And as I was studying this passage and I was thinking about this message and, and what, to, what to share, the thought struck me that this criminal who's hurling insults at Jesus actually cries out for Jesus to save him. And what we're going to find out today as we continue, both of these criminals are going to cry out for Jesus to save them. But what we're going to find is that the condition of their hearts as they cry out to Jesus is radically different. This first criminal, when he cries out for Jesus to save him, there's no humility, there's no brokenness of his heart, there's no repentance, there's none of that. There's no guilt over his sin. He just looks at Jesus as someone who can get him out of a tough situation. If I hurt him, maybe I can manipulate him, maybe he can get me out of this situation, I'm in pain, whatever I can do to get off of of this cross. And so he asked this question to Jesus, but how will Jesus respond to this criminal? What will Jesus say to this guy? 
What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Doesn't even respond to the guy. Doesn't even acknowledge the guy. As you think about that, I, I know for me it's kind of crazy. Like this guy over here, it, he's without hope. He, I mean, he is in big, big trouble. He's got no chance whatsoever. And if you think about it, though, this guy, in some sense, has won the lottery, right? Because he's being crucified next to the guy that created the wood that he is being crucified on. But yet all he can do in this moment is hurl abuse and insult. And he's being crucified. Luke tells us next to a guy that people were claiming, this guy's the Messiah, Right, so you would think if anyone would be open to the, the message of the cross, the message of the Messiah, you would think it would be this guy right here. It's over for him. But yet all he can do is hurl insult and abuse at Jesus. And that might seem shocking to us, right? It might be like, how is this guy missing it? How in the world could he do this with his final words of his life? But the Bible actually tells us there, that will happen, that there will and are people that respond to Jesus and the message of the cross in this way, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 18. He gives insight into why in a world a guy without hope wouldn't cry for mercy in this moment. He says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's Paul teaching here? Well, what Paul is teaching us is there are two kinds of people in the world, and there are only two kinds of people in the world. There's only two, and the first we see here is that people that are perishing, or they're, they're in the process of perishing. And what Paul just told us here is the message of cross to them, of the cross to them, for those who are perishing, it's foolishness. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. There's no way that could be true. It's foolishness. There are going to be people, the Bible tells us, that when they hear the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, that God sent his one and only son in the flesh, to dwell among us, to live among us, live a perfect, sinless life, to go to the cross, to bear the weight of our sin, and, and to take that and be punished for our sin so that we could be reconciled back to God through faith in Christ, there's going to be people that hear that and just say, that's foolishness. That's, that, 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 that's crazy. They're going to think it's the stupidest thing they've ever heard. So while it's incredibly, it's incredibly sad and it should break our hearts. We also shouldn't shock, it shouldn't shock us when we see a criminal without hope with his dying breath hurl insight at, at Jesus. But Paul also tells us there's another kind of person. There's another kind of person, the person who is being saved, people that be, are being saved. So what does Paul say, right? What does Paul say about the people that are being saved when they encounter the message of the cross? He's super clear about it. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For those that are being saved, when they encounter the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, it's the power of, of God. What does that mean, the, the power of God? Well, it means that people who are being saved, when they encounter the message of the cross, the power of God begins to work in their lives. They begin to change. Old ways of thinking and living and acting and behaving kind of fall off, and then new patterns and ways of thinking and habits start to take shape. Life change happens. Before Christ, your life looks a lot different than after you've placed your faith and trust in Christ. And when they hear the message of the cross, they think it's the best thing I have ever heard in my life. The gospel is the best news ever. That's why if you're a follower of Jesus, the gospel should never get old or stale to you. It should never be like, oh man, okay, here we go again. Yep, I got, I got this one. Like, can't we move on to something else? 
No, we never move on from the gospel. It's the greatest news ever. And I've seen this in my, my own life. Like when I hear the gospel preached with clarity and passion, whether it's Drew on a Sunday morning or one of our other communicators or even other church leaders or pastors, there's something inside of me that's like, yes, amen, let's go. Yes, that's the truth. And there have even been times on a Sunday where the gospel has been clearly presented where I walk out that day and say, man, if I wasn't saved, today would have been the day I would have gotten saved. Right, that's the power of, of the gospel. And to those who are being saved, it's the power of not me, not you or us. It's the power of God at work in our lives to bring the fruit of the gospel uh, to bear in our hearts um, and, in our, and in our lives. And what's interesting is we are going to see this very power of God happen in this next criminal. This is so cool. Check this out. Let's get to know the other criminal. We'll call him the second criminal. We'll call him the criminal on the right to the right of Jesus. Look at verse 40, watch this. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? So this criminal to to the right of Jesus, again, in the same physical position. He's bloody, he's beaten, he's bruised, he's hanging on a cross, he's dying there. He's got a few moments left to live, but this guy, when he encounters Jesus, his reaction is incredibly different, radically different. Look at verse 40. And there's a few things here that offer us and tell us about the condition of this guy's heart. What does he say? Well, he rebukes the first criminal and he says, do you not even fear God? So what do we learn about that? What do we learn about the condition of his, of his heart? Well, we realize he fears God. We learn that there is the fear of God in his, in his heart and people who are being saved, they have a godly, righteous fear of the Lord in their hearts. It's one of the evidences of faith. John Piper, actually, in one of his sermons, um, commented on this response of the second criminal to the first, and he, he said this. He said, the criminal on the right is pointing out that the criminal on the left is like an ant standing at the base of Mount Everest, demanding that Mount Everest flatten itself so that, um, so that he can walk across it. Right, that's what people who are perishing do. They have no fear of the Lord in the heart. They're like an ant screaming at Mount Everest. Here I come, get out of the way, make way for me. They have no fear of God in, in their heart. And this criminal here on the right, he looks at this criminal on the left and he's like, dude, close your mouth. Be quiet. Do you not even fear God? He goes on and he says this, this is so important in verse 40. So he rebukes him, don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. He's saying, look, you and me, buddy, we're, we're in this together. We're in the same situation. We're, su- we're, we're suffering justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, for our actions. Do you see, do you see what the power of God is doing in this second criminal's heart in this moment? He's saying, look, we're here because we deserve to be here. Meaning he recognizes he is a sinner. That's what people who are being saved, that's what they do. They have a fear of God in their heart and the result is I am a sinner. There's a gap between me and holy God and that is my sin and I deserve, I'm getting what what I deserve for my sin. It's the mark of a person being saved. He continues again, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Did you catch that? What did he just say here? He said, I'm a sinner, I deserve to be here, but there's someone here that does not deserve to be here. Jesus does not deserve to be here. He understands who Jesus is. A person that's being saved, not only do they fear God, but they know that they deserve the punishment that they're getting and they also recognize Jesus. He's sinless. 
He's perfect. He's righteous. He doesn't deserve to be here. And then look at verse 42 in the final words of this, this criminal. As he is dying, his final words, he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And unlike the first criminal where Jesus just completely ignores him, this first criminal that just would hurl insults at Jesus, this criminal, what do we see in his heart? We see a fear of God. He realizes his, his stance that he is a sinner and understands who Jesus is and he cries out for Jesus to save him with his final words. To rescue him in the final moments of his life for Jesus to remember him when he dies. And unlike the, the first criminal where Jesus doesn't even acknowledge, doesn't even respond to this guy, Jesus, I would imagine, lifts his head, turns to this criminal and in only one of seven statements Jesus makes on the cross says this, truly, I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. What an amazing statement Jesus made here. What incredible hope. Think about this guy. He's got no shot. He's at the end of his life. He is knee deep in his sin being crucified on a cross, and yet Jesus still offers him his best grace, his best forgiveness. And I hope that encourages you. You might be knee deep in your sin, being crucified on a cross at the end of your rope without hope, but yet Jesus is willing to give you his best grace and forgiveness. And he says, even if you throw up a last minute prayer for me to save you, I will be faithful to extend forgiveness to you even if you never have another breath. I will take you with me to paradise. So the, the repentant thief, this, this criminal, after a lifetime of rebellion, after a lifetime of just hurting people, making mistakes, right? He's a criminal. He, criminals get crucified. He's done some bad bad stuff is going to spend all of eternity with the Savior, and at the end of his life, he doesn't make excuse for his sin. No, he confesses his sin and need for a Savior. And even though, even though this guy's earthly journey with Jesus would be over just as quickly as it began, he was going to be spending all of eternity with his Savior, with Jesus um, in heaven, the guy that he's getting crucified next to. Uh, a place here that Jesus calls paradise that just simply means a, a place of delight where all things are made right. Drew actually did a series on this a, a few months ago, four weeks in-depth dive into heaven. And I encourage you to check that out if, if you wanna learn more and discover even more about what heaven is truly like. But as we think about this, I kinda wanna pause here for a second and just press in and ask you a question of how do you feel about that? How do you feel about a last minute Hail Mary prayer from a criminal that has spent his entire life hurting people, now getting to spend eternity with God? Like he gets to experience the same paradise I get to experience? I don't know, how do, how do I feel about that? I think of my own life, right? I've been born in the church. My dad's been a pastor my whole life. I've served in the church. I've gone on missions trips. I've given my life to the work of the ministry. And this guy, who spent his life doing terrible things get to, gets to experience the same paradise I get to experience? Man, I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about that? And, and I think at first glance, it's like, man, that doesn't seem fair. Right? It, it, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair until I think we back up here a minute and realize none of us really want fair. We don't want fair because the Bible tells us that we are all 
We were all enemies of God at one time or another. Now, you might not have been a criminal. You might not have spent time in jail. You might not have been an outright God mocker or done anything too terrible, but yet every one of us needs God's forgiveness and grace to be changed from enemy to friend. Paul, Paul is so clear on this in Romans when he talks that all of us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've fallen short of that standard, which is perfection. And as a result, the wages of that sin, the penalty of that sin is death. That, that, that sin must be, be punished. Every sin deserves a consequence. So Jesus, he would have actually been justified and fair in saying, Lord, remember what they've done and pay them accordingly. That could have been his final words in that moment. But that's not, that's not what he prayed. I may have prayed that, but that's not what he prayed. He extends grace and forgiveness to those who deserve it the least. Even though the wages of sin is death, God gives us the gift of his grace. All of us, when compared to a holy God, we're we're sinners. But let me also speak to the other side of that question, because there could be some here today that are like, man, there's no way God could forgive me. I've messed up too much, too often. I've blown it. I've tried but then I failed and I just continue to hurt the, the, the people around me. I'm too far gone. There's, there's no way that God could ever, ever forgive someone like you. But here, here's the thing. If there is ever a story in the Bible that shows us that our salvation is by grace, through faith, not of your works, it's a gift of God, it's this one. It's this story right here. It's not about what you have done or haven't done. It's a gift of God. This guy has done absolutely nothing to earn his salvation. It's not like he can trust Christ, get off the cross, serve God for 40 years, and then, you know, he's good. No, he's done nothing to deserve heaven. All he did, what did he do? He cried out. At the end of his life, he cried out in faith, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. Please save me. So if you're here thinking, man, it's too late, or there's, you're without hope, man, may this story, may this truth breathe life and hope into your life in a powerful way today. And Jesus says here, so today you will be with me in paradise. So let's think about this for a minute. Let's look at this statement of Jesus. We learn a couple of things here. At first, let's just take the word today. There's a couple things we learn about the word today. The first is we learn that there will not be purgatory. There will be no purgatory. And we realize here in Northridge, there are many people that have found a home here at Northridge that come from a Catholic background. And we are so thankful that you are here and uh, have a place to call home. And we recognize that that's one of the differences between the Catholic faith and the Christian faith. And the reality is when you read the Bible, study the Bible, it does not teach on purgatory. There will be no purgatory. You're not going to be hanging out in some place in between life and death. There's no soul sleep. You're not going to die, go to sleep, hang out somewhere for a while until Jesus decides what he's going to do with you. No, Jesus said today. Paul affirms this. He affirms this later in, in, uh, in the New Testament when he says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there's, there will come a day when my heart's going to stop beating. I'm going to stop breathing. Um, but in that very moment, I will be present with my Savior, with Jesus, which is, which is what he says next. He says, you will be with me in paradise. So everyone, think about that statement with me. You will be with me in paradise. And I want to ask you a question. What about that statement excites you the most? Is it the word paradise or is it the phrase, you will be with me? 
think, think about that, right? Heaven's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. We're not going to be little cherubs floating around on clouds with like harps and, you know, <laughs> doing weird stuff. No, it's going to be amazing. God recreates the earth. That's where we're going to spend eternity with no sin, no guilt, no more pain, no more hurt, no more snow. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> It's going to be unbelievable, but I'm telling you, the joy of heaven isn't the stuff. It's the joy will come from being with Jesus. And uh, one of my favorite verses and it is Philippians 3a. And I would encourage you, if you're looking for a verse, you want a life verse, this would be one to, to check out and, and to memorize. Um, but Paul, Paul says this. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul's saying here, look, that when it comes to following Jesus, what is central, what what is foundational to following Jesus, it's knowing Christ. The greatest joy in life is not making a lot of money. The greatest joy in life is not having a successful career. The greatest joy in life is not getting married. The greatest joy in life is not having a son or having a daughter. The greatest joy is found in knowing Christ. I'm telling you, the greatest joy in heaven isn't isn't the stuff. The joy of heaven is the fact that we will be with with Jesus. And so as we we wind down, there's, there's really a couple of questions I want us all to consider and just think about. You see, every single one of us, just like these two criminals, you're gonna encounter Jesus at some point in your life. You're gonna encounter the message of the cross. You're gonna encounter the gospel. Maybe for some of you, that's today, where you're encountering Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you on on the cross. And just like these two criminals, you are going to respond in one of two ways. You're either going to hurl insults at him, maybe not even with your words, but just simply through your heart and the way that you have been living your life, or you're gonna respond in faith and cry out for Jesus um, to save you. So the question today is is not, are we like one of these two criminals? That is not the question. The question is, which criminal are you? Which criminal are you? You're either the criminal that with your final words are gonna insult Jesus with your life, with your heart, with your mouth, or you're gonna be like the guy over here that with his dying breath cries out in humility, faith, and repentance for God to save him and to rescue him. So the question is, not are you a criminal, it's which criminal are you? And then for those that would say, man, I'm there, I've made that decision, I've placed my faith and trust in in Jesus, I think then a question for us is, how is the power of God working in your life? How is that joy of knowing Christ showing up in your life in a powerful way? Right, the message of the cross of Jesus and what he accomplished, just what we talked about was never meant to be something that we keep to ourselves. No, we're supposed to share it. So who do you need to share Jesus with? I love how two weeks ago, Josh just did an awesome job in his message of helping us think through the people in our lives that we need to share the gospel with, that we desire and and hope that they would one day come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he challenged all of us to write down a name that we would be praying for and investing in and inviting. How's it going? How's it going? 
at reaching out to that person, at loving that, that person and pushing them to know, to know Christ. You see these words of Jesus, yes, they are powerful. And 2,000 years ago, they were powerful and they're just as powerful today. And God is still just um, as much at work and active today in bringing people into a relationship with him. And I hope these words impact you in a huge way uh, today. Uh, let me pray. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for, thank you for Jesus unmatched love, mercy, and grace that he is so eager and willing to extend to anyone who is willing to cry out to him in faith. It's a gift. We have to receive it. And Lord, I pray for those that are here today that perhaps are encountering you and the message of the cross for the, for the first time. God, I, I pray that through the power of your spirit that you would um, break down those walls, that they would step forward in faith and belief that God, you are who you said you are, that you are our redeemer and our savior and that they would place their faith and trust in you. And if you're here today and you're, that is you and you're wondering, man, well, how, how do I go about doing that? What does that look like? I would just encourage you in the quietness of your heart. There's no magic order of words or formula. It's just a desire expression of your heart where you just say, God, thank you for Jesus. That you love me even though I'm a sinner and that sin has separated me from you. I recognize that Jesus came to die for my sin. And Jesus, I ask you to be the forgiver of my sin. Take over my life. You're the leader of my life. I want to follow after you. If you did that today, we want to rejoice and celebrate with you. That's the greatest decision and choice you could ever make in your life. Uh, tell somebody and keep pursuing Christ with everything that you have. God, for those of us that know you already, may this light a flame in our lives of where we want to be your hands and feet, not in a condemning, judgmental way, but through our actions, through our love, through our service, through our care, would we point people to the greatest message of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. By your power and strength, help us to do that. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.